Now, our sermon text today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 10 through 17. Again, carefully listen to God's holy, inspired word. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in you alone is all knowledge and wisdom. Grant us by your Spirit a true understanding of your word, and give us grace to receive it with reverence and humility. May we then heed your word and put all our trust in you alone so that we serve and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In a book about God's attributes, A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, whether you agree with the absoluteness of that statement or not, you have to at least agree that what you understand and think about God is incredibly important about you. What does come into your mind when you think about God? And is it all true of him? Another theologian, D.A. Carson, asked the question, what is the most urgent need in the church of the Western world today? He listed out several options. Is it it purity and understanding in dealing with sexual temptation and sexual sin? That's, That's a big problem. Is it a biblical integrity in dealing with the financial arena? from personal greed all the way to national economics. That's a big issue. Is it a need for evangelism and planting churches? The gospel definitely needs to get out around the world. Is, it, is, is the greatest need a biblical understanding of, of the government in the political arena? Some other big problems. He listed all of those things out as options, but then he answered by saying, the one thing 
we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. Because without understanding truth about God and without knowing God, no matter how important all of those other problems are, none of them will be resolved. How well do you know your God? Today we're going to look at a specific attribute of God that you may not have even thought was an attribute. In our sermon text today, God says he is a jealous God. And beyond that, he even says his name is jealous. Do you know God as jealous? He specifically reveals himself to his people as jealous. Why is that? What what does that even mean? Most of the time when you hear about someone being jealous, don't you think about that as as being a bad thing? I mean, one one couple, they buy a, a a nice new house, and their friends come over to see their new house. They're thinking to themselves, and the wife, she's jealous of the beautiful kitchen and the nice, spacious living room. The husband, he's... He's jealous of the workshop off of the garage and and that nice big yard. The visiting couple is jealous of the other couple's home. They want something that belongs to someone else, and they might even be resentful about it. Well, that type of jealousy is better termed envy. When you want something that belongs to someone else, that's envy. And envy is clearly condemned in many places in the Bible. So sometimes we use jealousy as a synonym for envy. And when we do, we're correct to think, well, that is a bad thing. But when God says he is jealous, he's not talking about envy. He's talking about a godly jealousy. One other place that that we normally think of and hear about the term jealousy is between husbands and wives. George is married to Betty. And George notices that Betty is paying a lot of attention to their neighbor, Fred. Inappropriate attention. In their wedding, George and Betty covenanted to keep exclusive faithfulness to one another. Betty has no business giving marital affection to anyone but George, and George is right to be jealous and guard his relationship and his marriage with Betty. Now, he can do that in a godly way or in a sinful way, but the root of that type of jealousy is more related to God's jealousy. So let's let's look at how God reveals himself as jealous in Exodus. In chapter 34, where God says he is a jealous God, he's renewing a covenant with the Israelites. And in order to understand why that's significant, let's back up. Let's see how we got here, how they got here. What happened before we get to this place in Exodus and before this time in the history of Israel? We're going to back way up. At the end of Genesis, if you remember, Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. 
He's under Pharaoh. And all the Israelites have moved and settled in Egypt because of a famine. Then at the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites are not only in Egypt, but they have been slaves of the Egyptians for well over a century. And now God has raised up Moses to deliver them. And God used Moses and Pharaoh's hardened heart in ten supernatural plagues to make it clear who the true God was. As you read through Exodus, you get the sense that the Israelites really don't know God all that well. Over and over throughout the interaction of Moses and Pharaoh, God said he was doing those things so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So that my name may be declared in all the earth. So that you may know that I am Yahweh. God was revealing himself to them. So through the plagues, the Israelites saw God's amazing power and the whole group of them, over 600,000 people with all of their livestock and all of their possessions, just walked out of Egypt. Egypt was one of the most powerful nations on earth. And they were miraculously defeated, not by the Israelites, but by God. And all their slaves, the Israelites, just walked away. Now, the Israelites were headed for Mount Sinai. That's where they were going. They were supposed to go there to sacrifice to their God. And God was leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So that meant they went exactly where God said to go every day. Now, shortly after they left Egypt, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they had second thoughts. What do we just do? We lost all of our slaves. So they gathered all of their chariots and their entire army together, and they went after the Israelites. And guess what? The Israelites were trapped up against the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go. They looked and they saw the Egyptian army coming and they complained to Moses, why did you bring us here to die? It would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. But how did they get there? God was leading them. He had specifically led them to be trapped. That was his plan. And of course, if you've read the story, you know what happens next. God parted the waters so the Israelites could walk across on dry land. And then when the Egyptians tried to do the same thing, God brought the water back and drowned the entire Egyptian army. And God said, this was done so that the Egyptians may know that I am God. God is revealing who he is. The Israelites saw God's amazing, miraculous works to protect and deliver them. So, they set out again, following God's pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. And they traveled three more days. They ran out of water. And they couldn't find any except some water that was so bitter they couldn't drink it. Where do you get water for 600,000 people and their livestock, 
out in the wilderness. So they complained again. What are we going to drink? So God tells Moses, throw a tree into the bitter water. Now in Egypt, remember, God turned the sweet water of the Nile into blood. Well, now he turns the bitter water sweet so they can drink it. And then he says, for I am Yahweh who heals you. He teaches more about himself. Then he leads them to a place where there are many wells and there are even palm trees. God provided again. Well, they set off again. They've been traveling now for just a month and a half. That's all. But that's long enough to have used up all of the food that they brought with them out of Egypt. So where do you find food for 600,000 people out in the wilderness? Well, of course, they complain again. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What does God do this time? Well, he says, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. So in the evening, he gives them quail to eat. And in the morning, and in the mornings going forward from then on, they go out and pick up from the ground these little flakes that they call manna. And they make food from them. So God miraculously provides their drink and now their food every day so that they know he is their God. Well, they set off again and they go a little farther. And they run out of water again. There's none to be found at all. So, okay, you think, all right, they've got to be getting the picture at this point, right? They're going to go to God and pray God, we don't have any water. Please give us water, right? No. They complain again. Why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses, he goes to God and says, what am I going to do? They're ready to stone me. Well, what does God do? Well, he tells Moses to take that rod that was used for all the miracles in Egypt Go and strike a certain rock. So Moses does that, and God gives them water from that rock. And while they're still camping in that place, the Amalekites come and attack them. Those are the descendants of Esau. Not a good thing. Now, remember, the Israelites have been slaves for over a century. How many of them do you think are well-trained soldiers? From what we know, they made bricks. What kind of weapons do you think they had? Maybe they got some from the Egyptians when they left, or, or maybe they picked up some from all of the drowned Egyptians. But they probably were not well armed. But Joshua goes with the men, and he fights the army of the Amalekites. As long as Moses holds up the rod, the Israelites prevail. 
But as Moses' arms grow weary and the rod comes down, the Amalekites prevail. So Aaron and her help Moses and hold up his arms the whole day, and the Israelites completely defeat the army of the Amalekites. And Moses builds an altar called Yahweh is my banner or my standard. So the Israelites learn they go to battle with Yahweh as their banner. Yahweh is their standard. He battles for them. Well, they travel again from there, and they finally arrive at their destination, at Mount Sinai. This is the place where they have come to sacrifice to God. All of these events that they've seen happened over a period of three months. Three months to the day from when they left Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai. A lot of spectacular things have happened in those three months. All so that they would know that Yahweh is their God. So Moses goes and he talks to God and he comes back to them and he says, God is making a covenant with you. He's delivered you. He's guided you. He's provided for you. He's protected you. And he says, obey me and keep my covenant, and that's what I'll do for you. And you will be you will be a special treasure to me, a nation of priests. And the people answer, yes, we will do everything you say. So Moses tells the people, okay, go prepare yourselves, because in three days, God will make that covenant. And on the third day, there is loud thundering and lightning and an incredibly loud trumpet that causes everyone to tremble. And there's a thick cloud of smoke on the mountain as God descends on the mountain. Then God speaks audibly. He speaks to the people and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And they actually hear the voice of God. They hear him say, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That just happened three months ago. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I The Lord your God am a jealous God. Here in the Ten Commandments, he says he's a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And he continues speaking to them, telling them the rest of the Ten Commandments. He's teaching them who he is, both in the Ten Commandments and by the fact that they now hear his voice. Well, that was all such a frightening experience that all the people tell Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore or we'll die. You go speak to him and then we'll hear it from you. So Moses does that. And then he takes the elders and the priests Partway up the mountain. 
And they sit down and they eat with God to seal the covenant. Then God calls Moses farther up the mountain so he can give Moses the tablets and the rest of the law of the covenant. So Moses and Joshua, they go farther up. And the elders and the priests, they go back down to the people. Now think of what's happened over the past three months. That was an amazing three months. Miracle after miracle. Would you ever forget all of that? It was incredible. Now Moses is up on the mountain speaking with God. He's there for 40 days. Just a little over another month. And God himself writes the law on the tablets. He writes the covenant on the tablets. And he gives them to Moses. Now, meanwhile, the people, they've been wondering, what's happened to Moses? In fact, after just 40 days of waiting, they go to Aaron and say, make us some gods to go before us. As to this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron makes them a golden calf. And they worship it and they have a feast to it, as if that's the God that brought them out of Egypt. Does that seem amazing to you? They saw the ten plagues on Egypt and all of the other miraculous events so that they would know who Yahweh was, that he was their God. They even heard him speaking to them and telling them not to make any gods, and not to worship any other god. And they made a covenant with him. This all happened over the last four and a half months. And they're already breaking the covenant and saying, make us gods. Well, God sends Moses down. Moses sees the people and what they're doing, and he breaks the tablets of the broken covenant. He has 3,000 people killed. And then he goes and he pleads with God to forgive them, to continue to go with them and take them as his people. Why does he do that? Well, his whole reason is so that God's name is honored. He doesn't want people to say that God couldn't deliver these people. He wants God's glory to be known. That's his whole reason. Moses is jealous for God's glory to be known. And God does all that Moses asks. And he renews the covenant with them in our text today. In chapter 34, verse 10. Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. God is promising even more amazing things than, the, than what they've seen over the last few months. In spite of the fact that they broke the covenant 
that he just made with them 40 days ago. But the Israelites need to be careful. Because he goes on and says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God renews the covenant with them. The covenant that they just broke. And in that renewal, he makes sure they know once again that he is a jealous God. He had said it before when he gave them the Ten Commandments. But now, not only is he a jealous God, his name is jealous. What's he saying? Now, earlier I said, we usually think it's bad to be jealous. But we saw that's when we're really thinking of envy. You know, envy is when you desire something that belongs to someone else. It's not yours. But God is the creator. Everything belongs to God. So he can never envy. But he is jealous. Jealousy occurs when someone else has what exclusively belongs to you. When you're married, the faithfulness of your spouse belongs exclusively to you. And you're right to be jealous if their faithfulness is ever given to anyone else. So if if that's what it means to be jealous, what is it that exclusively belongs to God, yet is given elsewhere and provokes him to jealousy? Well, all throughout the Exodus, God was teaching the Israelites and the other nations around through his mighty acts. And he did. And what did he say over and over? Why was he doing those things? He kept saying, they must know that he is God. Even the Egyptians must know that he is God. There is no other. There is none like me in all the earth. Even Pharaoh was raised up that my name may be declared in all the earth. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says it very clearly. I am Yahweh. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God is jealous for his own glory. Now, some might say, that, that sounds like God is selfish. But, but to be selfish is to be concerned about your own interests with no regard for the interests of others. Is that what's happening when God is jealous for his own glory? Well, what was it like before the world was created. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were all in perfect union. They had all glory, and and they glorified one another. Then God created the world for himself, and it was very good, and and all of creation declared his glory. 
At this point, all glory is still given to God. But then, in the garden, Adam and Eve doubted God. They gave glory to the serpent and to themselves when they decided to disobey God. That was the fall. Since then, all of mankind and all of creation have been subjected to the futility and corruption of sin. So when God does not receive all glory, sin and corruption and wickedness and death are the result. And if we look into the future, when Jesus returns, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says, Jesus will put all things under God so that God is all in all. All glory will be to God once again. As it says in Jude, we will all be in the presence of his glory in the new heavens and the new earth. In Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. When God has all glory, that's what it will be like for his people. So God is jealous for his own glory. Does that sound like he's selfishly looking for his own interests and has no regard for the interests of others? No. It's only when God receives all glory that everything is right with the world. And he is now at work through Christ setting things right. Bringing glory to himself so that he is all in all as it's supposed to be. So is there anything wrong with God being jealous for his own glory? No, in fact, It would be wrong if he wasn't jealous for his own glory. He is the creator of everything. He holds everything together and keeps it going every moment. He is the only one worthy of all glory. So to give ultimate glory and praise to anyone else or anything else is a wicked lie. So God is jealous to receive what is rightfully and exclusively his. And when that is set right, and he receives all glory, then all sin and evil and wickedness will be gone. And that will be good for all of his people and all of creation. So one thing we learn regarding God being a jealous God, is that he's jealous for his own glory. And not only is that not selfish, when all glory is directed to God, everything is right with the world and all his people will live in complete joy. The second thing that we learn about God's jealousy, as we see it here in Exodus, is that God is jealous for the faithfulness of his people. If we look again at the sermon text, starting in verse 12, it says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. 
But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Blessed, you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make a sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. The nations that are going to be driven out worship false gods. And God warns the Israelites, they must not make any covenant with those people. Not even a marriage covenant between their children. Because then they will be tempted to worship their gods. And they'll be tempted to turn away from Yahweh. And by describing turning away from him as harlotry, he's showing that the covenant relationship he has with his people is like a marriage. It's not just a list of commandments to obey like a good slave or a good employee. And it's not just a list of conditions to fulfill like a business contract. God's covenant is a relationship of love. To give worship or devotion to anyone or anything else is spiritual adultery. And Like any good husband who truly loves his wife, God demands absolute fidelity to him. Anyone or anything that threatens that fidelity is opposing the all-powerful, jealous God and provoking him to jealousy. So that means there are two sides to God's jealousy. On the one hand, God's jealousy is a great threat to those who play the harlot, to those who sell their heart to the world or anything else other than God. Our jealous God won't stand for that. And either discipline or judgment will follow. On the other hand, his jealousy is a great comfort It's a great comfort to those who keep their covenant vows within his bride, the church. Those who know their God know of his great love and his protection and his provision, and they love him and rest secure in his grace. His jealousy is a great comfort. Yet, as Israel showed over and over, Fallen people never learn who their God is, and they continually lapse into unfaithfulness. They continue to be spiritual adulterers. Our fallen hearts constantly give that place of glory and honor to ourselves or to other things. That's the result of the fall. But our jealous God wouldn't leave it there. In Christ, he pursued his unfaithful bride, the church. And he gave his own life for her. And by that, he made a new covenant. 
And he gave her a new heart so that she would know her God and be faithful to him. And he is working that out now until he returns. We're each a part of his bride, the church. We have each been unfaithful to him, and yet we have been loved and made new by him. We've been given a new heart and a new place. He's taken us out of the domain of darkness and out of the wretchedness of harlotry, and he's put us in the kingdom of his love, and we rejoice and give thanks, and we worship him. And now, along with thankfulness and praise and worship, another right response to God's jealousy is to also be jealous. To be jealous for God's glory like he is. Or like Moses was when he was pleading for God to make his name great and to make it known. In fact, when you get to this point, you realize, well, that's really why we're here. We are images of God reflecting his glory. Whatever we do is to be done so that it glorifies God. And when it comes down to it, as strange as it may sound, your life is not about you. Did you catch that? Your life, the story of your life is not about you. You're not the main character. There was a couple named the Richies. They went to the hospital to have their baby. They were excited. The, The ultrasound had shown a healthy baby boy. And when the baby was born, it was a boy. But there was something seriously wrong. He had no arms. And even more critical than that, he wasn't breathing. A birth is supposed to be a time of joy. This was devastating. The doctor looked at the parents and he said, Do you want us to let him go? As if to say, if he lives, his life is going to be worthless. If we do nothing now, it'll all be over. And there was silence for just a moment. Until the father said, do whatever it takes, save my son. So they rushed the baby away, and the parents sat weeping. And praying. And in less than 30 minutes, a nurse brought back a baby boy that had been resuscitated. He was in good condition, just like any other baby, except he had no arms. They took him home and they raised him. As he grew up, things were thought and said, things like, You'll never have a normal life. You'll never graduate from school. You'll never get married. You'll never have a family. But Daniel Ritchie actually learned to do everything with his feet that other people did with their hands. 
He could brush his teeth. He could get dressed, eat, live on his own. He even could drive a car. One day, he heard the gospel. And he placed his faith in Christ. And he began to understand. God made him the way he was intentionally. His lack of arms actually turned into something that grabs people's attention, if you can imagine. And he uses it to tell them about Christ. He's written a book about his life called My Affliction for His Glory. And in the introduction, he says it's God's book because his life is God's story. Since he was born with no arms, he relates to the Gospel of John chapter 9 to the man born blind. If you remember that story, as they were walking by, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, unlike the man born blind, Daniel Ritchie has never been healed. He still has no arms. But he knows he was made that way that the works of God and God's glory might be shown in him. And he glorifies God with a wife and two children. Do we have to have something so out of the ordinary to realize this? What is your life all about? Why were you made the way you are? Why is your life like it is right now? So that the works of God and the glory of our jealous God might be revealed in you. Your life is not about you. It's about God. It's all about God. So as we get to know God better, we become more and more thankful that our God's name is Jealous. We're thankful that he's jealous for his own glory. We're thankful that he's placed his jealous love upon us. And not only do we give him our obedience and worship and devotion, but we have become jealous for his glory in everything. Everyone must know and worship this God. There's no one like him. He's the creator and ruler, and provider, and redeemer, and savior. He is all in all. He is the only one and true God. And you are here to glorify him. All blessing, and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give our praise to you, for you are the only one worthy of glory. Thank you that you are 
rightfully jealous for that glory. And in your wisdom and grace, you have showered your jealous love upon us. May we glorify you and be jealous for your glory. In the name of Jesus, our great Savior and Lord. Amen.